Welcome to Sanctuary Conversations, a podcast about people of faith creating community together. I'm James Farlow. I'm Rebecca Farlow. And I'm Justin Lee. Today on Sanctuary Conversations, we remember the life and legacy of Rachel Held Evans, a blogger and author whose life and words were an inspiration to millions of Christians around the world. But before we get started talking about Rachel, there's been some news of note this week that I know she would have an opinion about. The Southern Baptist Convention has met for their their annual convention, and they've been discussing, among other things, uh, sexual abuse in the church. And it's been a big topic of conversation in blogs and Twitter uh, and a lot of other places for the past couple of months. Uh, but this week, uh, that conversation was superseded a little bit by another controversy, specifically the idea that women could preach on Sunday from a pulpit to a congregation filled with men. Um, there's a very well-known Christian author, speaker, Beth Moore, who sometimes preaches, even though she's not a pastor, she speaks in front of uh, her church and others occasionally on Sunday mornings. And um, technically, a, a, some complementarians think that's okay, some don't, but a lot of people got really upset about it, including Al Mohler, who is... Uh, gave his wisdom to an MP, uh, NPR interview, among other things, and on Twitter, and a lot of people just got pretty upset about it. So, Can you actually read us what he said? Sure. Wait, oh. I'm sorry. I might be speaking after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can read it. Here it is. It says, um, if you look at the denominations where women do the preaching, there are also the denominations where people do the leaving, Moeller said. I think there's just something about the order of creation that means that God intends for the preaching voice to be a male voice, end quote. The first thing I'll say to that is that um, there has been some decline in mainline denominations over the past uh, decades, um, but that decline has also come to the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention has declined notably in the past 10 to 15 years or so. in fact, there was just a bunch of articles about that in the past week as well, about how about half of Southern Baptist kids don't return when they grow up. So there's the decline is not just limited to mainline denominations or denominations that ordain women. Where's the increase? Uh, there's been a ton of increase in the developing world, and that's not limited to just denominations that have men as the speaker. There's a lot of Pentecostal denominations in the developing world that specifically you know, place women in positions of authority. So there's that counterfactual. Um, but just in general, I think the his critique is just so broad in general, it's and not to mention, you know, very sexist towards a lot of women who don't see complementarianism as the way they want to live their life. Uh, something I found today in my quest for statistics to prove him wrong um, as a disturbing statistic in American churches as of 2012. So this is a few years ago, only um, 11 to 12% of American congregations were actually led by a woman. And there are a fair number of, uh, of denominations now that ordain women. Uh, And so I just think, I think this is a topic for much larger conversation, but even denominations that, uh, ordain women. We're not seeing women get jobs 
as pastors, and that's a problem. Justin, you've grown up in the Southern Baptist Church. I'm curious what what your thoughts are having seen this convention unfold over this past weeks and just having come out of that movement. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are a lot of things I could say. Um, I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone that I am not 100% in line with the Southern Baptist Convention (laughs) on uh, several things. Uh, I appreciate that there is a concern in the SBC with getting theology right. But I very strongly believe this is a case of getting the theology really wrong. And I think that if we look at the fruit that has come out of this sexist theology, I think we can see the evidence that it's wrong. I mean, I've told the story a number of times of um, my mom in my Southern Baptist church growing up. Um, She was a very sought after teacher who taught a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class. Uh, that was aimed at parents. And she was an incredibly popular teacher. Um, Her class was always packed, and yet the church would not allow her to teach the class unless she had a man standing next to her. And the thing is, it was my mom that people came to see more than anything. Um, And she didn't complain about it, but I saw firsthand how this... Um, just the silliness of trying to hold on to this sexist theology played out because having a man stand next to her, having a man be officially part of the teaching team um, did not change anything about what my mom was saying. Um, And my mom was a powerful teacher And there are so many women out there who are so gifted and have these great spiritual gifts to teach and instruct not just other women, but men as well. And so if we can see that that exists, then I think the the kind of um, pretzel logic that folks have to twist themselves into to say, well, God, you know, gave these women this this gift to be able to teach, but we don't want them to teach men because of this particular passage here or there. Um, I think is is absurd. And, you know, particularly because the same approach is not taken to other uh, similarly obscure passages that if you were going to hold to the same standard, it would result in things like women having to wear head coverings in church and and be silent and all these kinds of things that thankfully the SBC does not teach. Uh, maybe we should be glad for that. But I, I I don't want to be too snarky here because I, I do love a lot about the SBC. Um, I'm not Southern Baptist anymore, but like that is the church I grew up in. And I know a lot of good Christians who are Southern Baptist, but I just think that the church is, is wrong on this. Yeah. I, um, I also came from a Southern Baptist background and for me, probably the most influential spiritual guide in my adolescent life was a woman. Um, she was my staff worker with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And as many of you know, InterVarsity allows for men and women to teach equally. And um, there's a ton of InterVarsity staff workers who are women. And um, they actually require their staff workers to disciple, to teach and, and work with and counsel both men and women students. And uh, InterVarsity has continued as a strong, powerful 
you know, organization for a long time um, since they started doing that. It's been decades now. There's other things that I disagree with that in university that some stances they've taken in recent years, but I think that that stance is one that has been particularly powerful, effective, and, and really life-changing for so many people. One other thing of note I think that is, is really sad about this is this is a time when the Southern Baptist Convention is facing real problems over decades-long cover-up of sexual abuse in the church. And I think that the fact that this week a fair number of influential male pastors chose to spend a large part of their political capital arguing about whether a woman could teach on a Sunday or in front of men. Um, and it says a lot about where some folks' priorities are, that some in some places sex abuse just really still isn't seen as the serious matter that it needs to be seen as. This for me is probably the biggest issue about this whole conversation is that um, as much as I disagree and I, and I do quite, quite strongly with the SBC on, on this theological question, um, I'm trying to find a nice way to say this because I believe in being gracious even towards uh, one's uh uh I hate to say enemies the 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 folks one disagrees with right um because I I I do still like the the Southern Baptist Church is still a big you know like it's a big part of me it's 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 part of my blood but I'm very concerned that there is a history in the SBC of um focusing on pointing fingers outwardly rather than doing some serious self-examination. Um, the Southern Baptist Church has a history of getting some pretty big things wrong. And I think the reality is, as human beings, we're going to get things wrong. And um, so I don't say that by itself as an indictment on the SBC. But it is important to recognize that the Southern Baptist Church came into existence um, when it split from other Baptists on the issue of slavery. And the Southern Baptists were on the wrong side. And so um, growing up, that is not something I heard about growing up. It's not until I became an adult and started doing some research on the history of the SBC that I actually began to realize that this church that I'd grown up in and loved had its origins in getting the slavery question wrong. And and so for me, I think I think it's really, really important for all of us as Christians to uh, follow Jesus teachings about looking for the plank in our own eyes rather than the speck in somebody else's. I think our theology needs to be more based on where can we improve? What is God calling us to do? And growing up in the SBC, I really felt like there was a lot of focus on how we, the Southern Baptists, were better than the other folks because we knew better than them on, you know, this issue and that issue and the other issue. And there wasn't a lot of grappling with, oh, hey, we got slavery wrong and gosh, our church is huge and there are like three people of color and like 2000 white people. And, you know, like what's there are some issues that we need to really examine and we need to talk about where where is God calling us to repent? Where have where are we getting things wrong? I would have a lot more respect for the SBC um, having a, a, a different viewpoint on, say, women's ordination. I'd still disagree, but like I would have more respect for that conversation 
if it were coming in the midst of real self-examination and repentance on, as you mentioned here, uh, the the sex abuse scandals, um, I know that in the church that I grew up in, there were things that happened that were not widely discussed in that church. And it's a huge problem. And there were elements of how the church talked about or didn't talk about sex and sexuality that allowed abuse to occur um, and not be examined and, and, and actually put pressure, although I don't think it was intentional, it put pressure on victims of abuse to remain silent. And um, that's something that I think should give any Christian pause. It should cause any Christian to say, oh my goodness, as soon as we realize that that's going on, there's something that we need to fix about this culture so that this never happens again. And we need to repent of that. And that absolutely should be our focus before uh, complaining about what some other denomination is doing differently. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's, I think it's just symptomatic um, when you make it your habit to uh, repress the voice of women, you know, why are you going to suddenly change? Even in the face of, you know, mounting extreme evidence of widespread abuse. When you communicate, when you keep women from a position of leadership in a church, or when you allow <laughs> allow women to lead, but don't give them the title of pastor, or when they're kept out of leadership positions, which this is true in a lot of large non-denoms too. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize it because you have to know the language to look for and the things to look for. But when you keep women out of those top tiers of power, it is a culture of not respecting the voice of women, period. <laughs> yeah. Well, anytime somebody is not present in leadership, um, even when people mean well, when you're not hearing the voice of a certain group of people, you don't know what you're missing because the people who could tell you what you're missing aren't there to tell you that you're missing it. And so you end up with folks who are are very well-meaning, but like if if your leadership is entirely straight white men, you may not mean for women and people of color and LGBTQ folks to feel unwelcome, to be oppressed, to be victims of one thing or another. You may not mean that, but it's unlikely that these straight white men, as well-meaning as they are, are going to be aware of all of the messages that are being sent and all of the the things that are happening because they're not the ones affected by them. They're not the ones who are in tune to hear those messages. And the only way that you can address those things is if you have folks who are at the table in leadership who can raise these questions, who can watch out for these things, who can call attention to things before something happens. Um, and, and so when that doesn't, you know, when they're not present, you run into problems and people leave, people feel oppressed, people feel unheard, uncared for, unloved, um, just from the fact that that they know that somebody like them isn't at the table, but also from all of the other ways that that resonates, all of the ripple effects of that throughout the church. Yeah, and I think often in human cultures, 
and specifically in complementarian cultures in the church, where women are kept out of leadership positions and often taught to be, you know, taking care of children at home, women are close to the needs of children in those contexts. And if those women are not in places of authority or their voice is not respected with the same weight that is given to a man, it shouldn't be surprising that it may be the case that the needs of kids will be overlooked or the advocacy of of what's happening to children could be overlooked. I don't, I can't prove this is the case, but if women were equal in power in a lot of the leadership positions of churches, I think it would be more likely that children's needs and when children were violated, that would be a really big deal. It just seems to me that that seems pretty obvious, but I don't think we can overlook that. Well, um, why don't we start move on to our, our next topic today, which is just um, to talk about the life of, of Rachel Held Evans. Rachel, as, as probably all of you know, passed away a few weeks ago in late April. As has been seen many times on Twitter and in the news, she just had a tremendous impact on our world and on the lives of people that we know, on ourselves. And we just wanted to take time today in the midst of our series on churches to talk about how she affected us personally and affected those around us. What was so important about Rachel's life and voice in your own life, in your own journeys? So it's I'm still having difficulty talking about about Rachel um and sounding eloquent and not getting choked up. So I'll do my best here. Um Rachel was an incredible friend um uh, to me and to I know a lot of other Christian leaders. Um a lot of women, a lot of LGBTQ folks a lot of people who, for one reason or another, had felt frustrated and disenchanted with the the um, some of the structures in the churches that they grew up in, but still loved the church, still loved their faith, and were trying to figure out what it looks like to be a Christian in the modern world and to recognize some of the human failings of the church institutions that they'd been part of. Um, while still being totally in love with Jesus, you know? And um, when you talk about like the need for folks to be in leadership and have their voices heard, one of the things that Rachel did better than anybody else I know was she, she listened and she, she spoke up. She spoke up as a woman about her experience, but she also spoke up for other people and gave them opportunities to speak for themselves as her blog got more popular. And as she was writing books and they were getting more popular, she was always offering space to other people to answer questions, to speak about their experience and pointing people to others so that they could hear these other folks stories and, and learn from them. Um, there was so much of that that she did publicly but I think the thing that really, um, the thing that really hit home for me after she passed, when I went to her funeral, was that there were so many important, influential authors and 
speakers and Christian thinkers and leaders who were friends of Rachel's, who had stories of of the times that she reached out to them privately just to encourage them, the the times that she checked in on them, the ways that she prayed for them and offered support to them when they were going through hard times and um, brought them attention at times that it could lift up their platforms and um, just all of the things that she did. It was like she was like everybody's best friend. And, and she did it not for some kind of acclaim, not to like network and build up her own worth in some way. She did it because that's just who she was. She did it because she loved people, because she knew that God loved people. And and she wanted, she just, she cared about people. I was really struck by how at her funeral, there were so many people who um, I think of as titans. You know, people I think of as just these leaders who seem unapproachable because they're so well-known in certain Christian circles who privately admitted that um, that they felt lost without Rachel because she gave them so much encouragement. And I thought, my gosh, we all need that. We all need that kind of encouragement. And we, we don't often give it to others the way that Rachel did. Um, she reached out to me on a number of occasions and, and, just always made me feel like when we were talking, like I was the most important person in the world to her, even though she, she did that with a lot of people, you know, um, she encouraged me and made me feel like I could tackle the challenges that came my way. And, um, like I was loved and, um, I realized that I have not often enough done that for others. And, and I, and I wanted, I want to do that. That's a little piece of who she was. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I speak to this as someone who did not know her personally. I, um, greatly admired her and she was somebody who was hugely influential, um, to me. I, I did get to see her speak a couple of times. Um, I got to meet her once and I can, I can say she's the only person, the only speaker I've ever seen who mingled before her talk. Like she would mingle out and talk to people before she actually spoke. And then, um, when she spoke at the GCN conference, um, in Chicago, she stayed up late into the night in the lobby and let people just come up to her and come up to her and come up to her. Um, and I just remember being really struck by that. But, um, I, I don't think I had any idea until she passed how, um, like what a hole it would be for me. Um, she was a woman who, um, communicated with such grace and such passion and, uh, such kindness, all the things you've already said, Justin, like it's hard to describe. Um, she said the things so many of us wanted to say, but she said it so much better (laughs) than we, um, than we could hope to say it. And, but she was always, um, 
also said it with such graciousness. Like she was somebody who could, um, it wasn't like she was just unfailingly nice. It was like, um, she was really nice, but she was, she wouldn't back down, but her communication invited engagement and listening from people who disagreed rather than dissent. It was, I think she was a unifying kind of person and with that rare, rare gift of, like you said, kind of making everyone feel like they were the most important person. Yeah. So just a huge, huge loss. I don't think I was aware either of how much she shared her platform. What a huge gift that is because it is not something very many people do, (laughs) particularly, particularly not on like a wide scale. I mean, just, it's, it's just would be very difficult. Um, but to lift up voices that should be heard and to share that kind of um, thing, I think is uh, just another huge loss uh, on top of everything else. I know that when my mom was like Rachel, I started to kind of go through my own period of questioning what I had been taught as I, I grew up and, I was trying to explain it to my mom, and it was from a conservative Baptist uh, background. The best thing I could do after a while was just refer her to the writings of Rachel. Because as a woman and as somebody who communicated it so clearly, I just couldn't think of a better way for me to try to communicate with my mom other than just to send her some of her blogs and that was kind of the first way I was like, well, here, read this. And and this really explains it really well. Um, or, you know, what do you think about what she said about this? Um, it was just a way for us to communicate in the midst of this process of me exploring my own identity. Or in some cases where I had already come to understand uh, my relationship to Christian faith, I'd, I kind of went on a similar journey to Rachel, but, I, you know, not publicly. Uh, and uh, I just couldn't always explain it to my parents. Um, so I would often refer them to her. Yeah, I anytime I think I talked with somebody who particularly came from evangelical background and had questions about LGBTQ people and and faith and and things like that, I would always refer them to her blog post, The Slippery Slope. That was the first thing I would I would send them to. And invariably, I never had anybody say anything, but you know, that was really really amazing. Justin, when did you first meet her? Um, so I first connected with Rachel after I, I read, uh, one of her blog posts. Um, it was years ago and, um, I sent her a message and we connected and, and chatted a bit. And, um, that's when we first became friends, um, around the time when my book was i my first book torn was getting ready to come out uh my publisher had encouraged me to start a blog um at that time i was mostly known for the nonprofit that i was running and so i you know i i hadn't done a whole lot of stuff in my own name because all my stuff was in the nonprofit's name and so um they encouraged me to start a blog and start trying to build my platform um which is a thing you do as an author and Rachel, uh, asked me to do a guest post on her blog that was called ask a gay Christian. She had a much bigger platform than I did. 
And so I owe a, a lot of the platform that I have today to the fact that she did that and sent a lot of her readers my way. And when when my book came out, even though my book came out right around the same time that she had a book that, that came out, um, she still put in a lot of good words for me and encouraged people to read my book and took time out of her busy schedule when she was, you know, in the middle of promoting her own book to promote mine too. That's just, you know, <laughs> like that's who she was. And um, the first time we met in person was actually in the middle of that promotional time for both of our books. My publisher had booked me a, a TV, a, like a local TV appearance in Nashville. And um, as they were showing me into the building, one of the people who worked there at the station um, said offhandedly something about how Rachel Held Evans had said such nice things about my book. And I was like, oh, when did you interview Rachel? And they said, oh, just now. And I thought at first they meant like a week earlier, like whenever their last episode was. And I was like, oh, when was that? And they're like, just now, like just now. And I'm like, you just interviewed her? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, is wait, Rachel Held Evans is in the building right now? And they're like, yeah. And as they were saying that, like we opened the door to this studio and there was Rachel um, and and her husband sitting on the other side of the room and she looked up and she saw me and she she said, Justin, like, you know, she recognized me right away. And it's funny at her at her funeral, Nadia Boltz Weber gave um, a sermon where she talked about how no matter what time she called when she called Rachel, that Rachel had this way of saying her name, saying Nadia in a way that like just made her feel so loved. And, and she said, literally nobody else ever says my name that way. And, and that was my experience as well. Like that was just Rachel. She said my name and it was just like, she was so excited to see me. And, um, and so we, we ended up, um, talking for a little bit, but she had to go and they needed to interview me. And, um, in this studio, part of the set was like, they had this weird, they had a, I don't know what, what was going. They, they clearly shot different kinds of shows in the studio. And there was this weird part of the set with like a stuffed Turkey. (laughs) (laughs) It looked like a Turkey, realistic looking turkey stuffed animal kind of thing you know and she's like we we should get i said we should get a picture together and she said let's get a picture with the turkey and so we went and we posed on either side of the turkey with these goofy grins on our faces and as i think dan her husband took the picture and as he was taking the picture i casually just rested my arm on the turkey and it was at that moment that i realized that this was apparently a real turkey, like a taxidermied <laughs> actual turkey. And so I'm horrified that I'm touching this dead turkey at the moment that this, and I still have this like goofy smile plastered on my face at the moment that the picture was taken. And so I still have that picture. Um, I, I like to remember moments like that. Like I like to remember the good moments and um, because I can laugh at that. Um, because otherwise it feels like such a, a tremendous, tremendous loss. One of the things that Rachel did that 
really um, affected me. When, when Rachel wrote and talked about her experience growing up in an evangelical church as a young woman, um, I certainly knew a lot about my experiences of feeling left out and feeling like something was wrong with me and everything as a, as a gay man, you know, as a gay kid who didn't know he was gay yet. Um, I had seen that there was sexism in the church that I grew up in. I'd seen the sexism that my mom faced, for instance. But not having ever experienced it directly myself, I thought that I was aware of the level of, of sexism because I saw, because sexism um, bleeds over into homophobia and anti-LGBTQ sentiment. And so like there are ways in which that sexism played into like my own feelings of not being welcome, you know, in the church, feeling like something was wrong with me because I wasn't a manly enough manly man, you know? So I thought, I thought I, I understood and listening to Rachel talk about some of the experiences she had and ways that certain verses were interpreted and, and ways that the Bible was used and, and how it made her feel. It opened my eyes to a whole world of sexism that I didn't know was there, that I knew intellectually was there, but I hadn't really fully understood as a guy. She wrote a lot on her blog and in her books about this idea of recognizing other women as women of valor. And that phrase, um, which there's a whole history to that she writes about, is something that's really stuck with me um, in my life, that need to recognize the women of valor in a church um, in particular. Um, and it's a, it's a constant challenge to me to be aware of the sexism that I don't naturally see, even though I think that I do because I'm gay, that there's so much that I don't see that I need to be aware of, that I need to always um, be conscious of. Rachel was so, so, so gifted at speaking for those who had been marginalized and to those who had been marginalized so that like both people who had been hurt and marginalized by the church could feel healing from her words, but also those who were not part of those groups could have their eyes opened to what was going on. And that was such a unique gift of hers. Rebecca, I know you've talked a lot about being a woman in the church. Do you kind of identify with what Justin's saying? I mean, yeah. Um, something I remembered actually um, made me smile a little bit in the in the days after she passed was um, when I did get to chat with her at the GCN conference in Chicago. Um, I had just finished my novel, and so we were talking about it, and she called me a woman of valor and high-fived me. <laughs> um, little things. Like, I've read some of um, the year um, of biblical womanhood and just very small things that she would say would stick with me. It meant a lot to me to see the respect that she was given as a woman, um, particularly as a woman um, who 
you know, didn't have a, the- I, I often feel that for a woman to be heard at all in any church conversation, she has to have like at least a PhD. Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, Rachel didn't, she was obviously, you know, humongously intelligent and absolutely <laughs> knew what she was talking about. Um, but the, the command that she had and the, um, respect that she was given, even though I know there were plenty of people who didn't, but I think even we saw in her passing, a lot of people on the conservative side felt moved to make statements and write articles. And, um, that speaks volumes and we could have used, you know, a hundred people like her, a hundred women like her, there was only one of her and, uh, only she was the only one doing what she was doing. Like I know she worked really hard to promote authors. I know there are other people who write about similar things, but you said this, I think. And when we, we, we talked maybe the week um, after she passed, you said that she was the mouthpiece for disenfranchised evangelicals. Well, it's probably worth reflecting on like what, you know, what's been happening in the evangelical church over the past 18 years that led to her having such influence. I mean, I think she would have been a person of influence no matter what. Um, But like you said, she's the voice for a large group of people. And what has been happening that, that led to that? You know, she asked questions that a lot of people were asking of themselves. And then she wrote about that in her blog and in her books. Um, And she made it, you know, I think she made it safer and more okay to have those questions. And then um, she made it less scary, perhaps, to be delving into those things. And she came out on the other side as someone who still hadn't lost faith, um, still very much loved God, loved Jesus, um, still very much loved the church. And that was one of the big differences like, you know, a lot of people are like, I'm just done with this and I can't do it anymore. And there's understandable reasons for that. In terms of what's been happening, I mean, I don't know, Justin, do you want to speak to that a little bit now that you're having tea? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, so much. I mean, you know, in the age of the internet, a lot of folks who have have had questions have you know whatever have have been able to find community and find other people who had questions and and were frustrated um i think there's been a a growing uh conversation about the the church's um unfortunate failures in hearing people's voices in in fighting the marginalization in secular culture that the church has too often been behind instead of ahead of of that curve if this is of god if this is such a great institution why does the church seem to be the last to be recognizing the accomplishments of of women and welcoming lgbtq folks and so forth and and so rachel had this way of of speaking to that of expressing her frustration of expressing expressing these things that other people were feeling and like putting words to it in a way that other people were like yeah that that's what i've been feeling and i haven't had the words to express it and she just said it so well and um and doing it in a way that was 
so it always felt so transparent and so humble that it it invited people to the conversation and one of the things that Rachel wrote about sometimes in like uh in secular news settings was you know why are so many young people leaving the church and and basically saying look at churches it's not that that young people need uh church to be you know, cool and trendy with a new logo and, you know, different music and more screens or something like that's not that's young people want authenticity in the church. They, they want, but they want a church that, that reflects the diversity of God's creation. They want a church where their friends and their family members are welcome and are invited to the table and are loved. And, you know, like, she she got it and um i think yeah i mean i think i think it was that shift people leaving the church and being frustrated and 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 looking to somebody to to give voice um i think it's notable that you mentioned um her blog and that everybody kind of mentions that the first time they talk about her is, is that she really got big at the beginning of the kind of blogosphere revolution um, when like, you know, 2006 to 2011, I think would be kind of the time before social media kind of took over, uh, and, and kind of pushed blogging to the side a little bit. Um, and I think that also speaks to the effect of the internet in general, which is to kind of take apart all these church walls, like all these church walls that people kind of stay in their land in Methodist land or Baptist land or or whatever, and you raise kids in whatever land you're in and teach them, okay, this is the way we think of things and this is what's true. And, you know, the earth was formed 6,000 years ago and Jesus came and then he gave his message to John Wesley and John Wesley passed that on to us and we know it's the truth. And um, you got kind of raised in that little subculture and then some people kind of, some people kind of found their way out of it, going to college or reading stuff or some people didn't care and just got married and stayed with whatever tradition they're in. And then a lot of people just kind of were like, okay, this is, this is the way things are. And then with the internet, it's like people are able to look up and be like, oh, there's a lot of evidence that Earth is not 6,000 years old. And that has caused this huge crisis among, I really feel like it's among our age group. Like, you know, the 25 to 45 year olds who were old enough to be really influenced by that subculture, but then came of age around the time the internet started to grow. And I mean, I was raised reading creation magazine. Um, <laughs> that's what, uh, to protect so against about the dangers spiritual of warfare. <laughs> spiritual warfare, the video game, favorite of justice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the eighties were the eighties and early nineties were the age of the Christian subculture, like, Computers, books, radio programs, whatever it was like to keep kids from being exposed to all these negative, <laughs> dangerous, ideas. dangerous ideas. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, in the 80s, there was the there was the like satanic panic, the idea that like role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons were gateways to to the devil. And, uh, you know, and, and, and there was that like that whole thing of like, we've got to keep people in a bubble, insulate them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that would have continued. It's just the internet makes that so much harder. If you're committed to kind of like 
a plausible idea of the world. If you want to make up whatever you want, the internet can aid you in that too. But I mean, like if you're committed to some kind of coherent, rational understanding of the world before, before that you could kind of hold to some beliefs that maybe, you know, maybe weren't in sync with what people knew, but it it didn't matter as much. It, It was easier to kind of cohere that together. And then for all of us since then, it's like, we're trying to cope with that. And Rachel is kind of trying to cope with that. And she just said it so well. And she's like one of the focuses, one of the three or four probably big focuses of of people trying to figure that out. What should we do? What should we do now? What do you think Rachel would want her impact on others to be? You know, I think Rachel was, was such a great example that, um, if you keep people out of leadership in the church, God will raise up the leaders anyway. Um, Rachel grew up in a, in a church culture that did not give her the same authority as a woman. And yet God put her in a position where she had far more influence than she probably would have had if she'd, you know, been pastoring a church somewhere. Um, I think her legacy is so multifaceted that it feels somehow like a like an injustice to her to even try to like pick apart exactly what is her legacy because there's so much, right? But like I think part of her legacy is that she was all about empowering others and making sure that the voices that weren't being heard could be heard. And um and she demonstrated over and over and over in her private life and in her public, you know, her public work, the importance of listening to people and caring about who's not at the table and who's not being heard. And I think if we all just followed that example, if we all just spent our time thinking, who is not being heard? Who do we need to hear from more? Um, And it and sometimes the people that Rachel featured on her blog answering questions were not necessarily people she even agreed with. It was just, this is another voice that we need to hear so that we can understand them. And um, that's part of the lesson that I've learned from her is I want to do that. I want to listen to people more and I want to use whatever platform I have to elevate them and, and, and help others be heard. I think when I reflect on what you say, Justin, that's and my own experience of trying to do work in the world, just how how hard that can be sometimes. Uh, that, again, is what amazes me about Rachel is is that the world it's it's just so much of life seems like you're in danger of getting left behind. It's a competition. There are mm. people trying to move you out of the way. If you don't act now, somebody else is going to take your place. Um, yeah, it's so hard to think about living. There's so much fear, I think, in living in that kind of abundant generosity. Um, and I'm speaking to my own personal experience. I, I want to be able to live like that, but I know that fear often keeps me from living that way. 
Um, but that is the mark of abundant life. And I know that's the kind of generosity that we see when we look at Jesus. And when we see people who impact us the way Jesus impacted others, it's, it's that kind of reflection. So I want that too. I just know I need God to make me a better person to be able to do it. And I have to work at it every day. I'm going to quote the live action Cinderella movie from 2015. (laughs) (laughs) At the very beginning, um, uh, when Cinderella is a little girl, her mother tells her to have courage and be kind and she'll change the world. And I feel like that just encompasses what, what she did so, so well. Um, she was very brave and very kind. And if we could all, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if we, if we could all do those things within our own sphere of influence, whether it's public platform or just daily life, um, things would be a lot better. Um, I think it's made me think a lot about, um, the things that I've always cared so much about, particularly empowering women in ways that I can do that better and ways that I can use the things I've learned and the things I know how to do in order to do that better. Um, and how to raise up women in the church and particularly in music. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I think obviously, I mean, people say this over and over again, and it's, it's, it's very obvious, like, you know, she's irreplaceable. Nobody's going to replace her, but I think people have to, um, try to continue to do the things that she cared so much about. So like, which, you know, has all been said, but caring for the marginalized and, um, and sharing power, you know, sharing power and platform and, um, and voice. I think again about my, my grandfather, because the reality is, is that we, we can do the things that Rachel did in terms of loving others. We're not all going to be as well-known or have as wide an impact as she would, as she would. I mean, it's literally impossible. Even if everybody was perfect, some people would have more of an impact than others in terms of followers or numbers or fame. Um, But my grandfather's impact on our family's life was no less significant. And it was no less important. Um, It was just, that was his place, and this was Rachel's. And uh, I think it's Jean Vanier, Vanier who says that, you know, God doesn't need people to do extraordinary things. He needs uh, people to do ordinary things extraordinarily well. Um, And... uh, that's the way I want to live. And that's the way she lived. Well, can you guys have anything, any other closing thoughts before we finish? I think it's important to, to note that like, you know, as much as we all, as much as the losses of it is for, you know, people like me, like, you know, people that she loves so well and her friends and family, like, you know, I just, 
I'm going to keep praying for them. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for being with me here tonight. <laughs> you going to say something? <laughs> oh, sorry, Justin. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's fine. I was just, I, I was trying to think of something great and profound to say. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, like the reality is I, I really do feel so inadequate to like have the yeah. conversation at all. I mean, it feels like, like trying to express who Rachel was and who Rachel was to me and who Rachel was to the world. And, you know, it, it feels like when you're a kid and you're trying to draw and like you, you, you're the only way you know to draw a person is like a stick figure out of crayon and you look at it and you know, that's not really what the person looks like, but it's still the only way I know how to draw a person. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, I, I mean, that's, it's, I feel so inadequate. I feel so inadequate. I, I, I don't know how to do justice to her. And I've, I've been trying ever since, ever since she died, I've been trying to find some way to express how important she was and who she was. And I don't know how to do it. And so like, I'm, I appreciate taking this time to talk about her. And I still feel like somehow like we scratched the surface of everything that I want to say and don't have the words to say. And that's the hard part for me. Well, we'll let that be the last word then. Because <laughs> I think that's one of the most important things to say is that we can't say it all. Um, well, thank you guys for listening to us this week. Uh, we'll be back soon with more pastors um, from churches trying to do the things that Rachel talked about, make space for people who are on the margins and um, welcome. Pastors, clergy, uh, congregants, a elders, variety of a variety of human people. beings <laughs> uh, from every walk of life uh, working to make uh, our churches safe spaces and sanctuaries. Uh, we'll see you next time. Sensations.